beginning to reach a point of loathing of mutual animosity that's so great that not only do I not have any interest in your liberty, I've become an actual opponent of your liberty. And that's when you begin to break the social compact. Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is David French, the constitutional lawyer turned writer and author. David is senior editor of The Dispatch and now the author of a new newsletter for The Atlantic called The Third Rail, which will tackle the complex issues that divide the country. David is also an evangelical Christian who started his career as a religious liberty attorney. After serving in Iraq as an army officer, he eventually turned to writing, emerging as a prominent conservative voice in 2015, writing about everything from the Republican Party to evangelical politics. His ascent coincided with the rise of Donald Trump, who he has consistently opposed. David was even floated as a potential third-party presidential candidate to run against Trump in 2016. I called up David on Wednesday to discuss his new gig at The Atlantic, evangelical support for Trump, Christian opposition to vaccines, and the future of the Republican Party. David, thank you for joining me. How are you doing? Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm very excited to talk to you today because I've long been a fan of your of your writing. And you have now joined The Atlantic as part of their new crop of newsletter writers. Tell us what we can expect from David French at The Atlantic. <laughs> well, the, the newsletter is named The Third Rail. And because what I want to be able to do is talk about all of the hard stuff, but also do it in a way that is uh, where we're capable of having a conversation. Because if there's one thing that we've we've we have a lot of things dividing us in this country right now. Uh, I mean, heck, I wrote a book about how we the country might actually fly apart. <laughs> and so we absolutely have to have spaces where we can talk about the things that are actually real that divide us and the things that are actually meaningful that divide us, because we can't do this sort of kumbaya, we're all really actually all alike in our views when we're not. But at the same time, try to do it in a way that models a healthy pluralism. Um, you know, because one of my one of my basic theses in my book and in my writing and in my thinking is that in reality, this country has was built to be a pluralistic country where people of dramatically different points of view can live side by side and prosper side by side. And we're and we're losing that and we're losing that. So the goal is to not to shy away from anything but to deal with it in that pluralistic spirit. I have heard this argument from mostly from conservatives, but also also from liberals that we're getting to a point in the country where the disagreements are that the sort of gap between the right and the left is so gaping that it's irre irreconcilable. And, you know, Ted Cruz, I think it was who said this week that he joked about Texas seceding and Joe Rogan becoming president. Um, is succession something that you think is a plausible thing that could happen in this country? Is it something that you fear we're getting closer towards at least? I think it's possible. I mean, it's certainly not probable, but I think it's possible. And if, and if present trends continue, it may move from possible to probable at some point in the indefinite future. Hmm. And, and the reason is, is pretty simple. It isn't the ideological divide. Okay. That, that, that isn't at the root of it, what I believe is ripping us to shreds. It's the, it's the negative partisanship. It's the animosity divide. In other words, you, the loathing, the mutual loathing that is, that is arising within the United States of America so that 
you know, there is a way in which our social compact depends on a, at least a basic level of regard for each other. In other words, you know, if, if our social compact says that if you and I are on diametrically opposed uh, places in the political spectrum, but we enjoy the exact same free speech rights, that I, as a kind of in a human way, I have to have at least some basic level of respect for you to want to extend myself to protect your liberty. And mm -hmm. what's beginning to happen is we're beginning to reach a point of loathing of mutual animosity that's so great that not only do I not have any interest in your liberty, I've become an actual opponent of your liberty. And that's when you begin to break the social compact. And so it isn't the case that we're going to split apart because Alabama's view of climate change is so different from California's or because the, you know, the, the tax structures or even necessarily really these educational fights, because education is so often locally determined. It's much more because of this incredible amount of loathing. And this thing is documented and not everyone feels it. Mo most people don't feel it, that kind of deep visceral loathing. But the wings of the country, the people who are most invested, they really, really feel it. And in my mind, that's far more of a danger than our divisions on any given particular point of policy. And those are often the people that are most politically engaged, and and oh, which for is, sure, which is the issue. And uh, you know, I do want to get into the the sort of root causes of that um, accelerating animosity uh, in a little bit. But first, I want to ask you: you you're a conservative Christian who has written extensively about evangelical politics for years, and I would say you've written about American Christianity with increasing alarm. Yeah, how would you explain to us where the evangelical political movement stands in America right now? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think what's really important is to, for folks to understand something about the word evangelical. Mm -hmm. So there's basically two definitions of the word. One is a theological definition of the word, is, which is, do you believe theological proposition A, B, C, D, E, and E? And the number of people who answer yes, that they, they believe in this set of theological propositions, regardless of race, it's a pretty small percentage. It's six, seven, eight percent, depending sort of on where the polling takes you. So a small percentage of people are what you would call theological evangelicals. A much, much larger percentage are what you call self-described evangelicals, and especially white self-described evangelicals. That percentage of, of all Americans gets into the high 20s, and it's extremely consolidated within the GOP, extremely consolidated. And that very large group of self-described evangelicals is often wedded to what I've called in writing, uh, in my writing, a God and country lifestyle brand. Mm -hmm. It is a, a sort of a match of theology and politics, not in some sort of comprehensive intellectual way, but a much more visceral way, a marriage of God and country in a much more visceral way that amplifies dedication and loyalty to the GOP and amplifies hostility and loathing of the Democratic Party and increasingly begins to see um, political contests as existential contests, as presenting existential threats, not just to the existence of the country, but to the existence of churches that they often don't even attend. <laughs> yeah. So for, there, there's a really interesting um, research that shows about half or so of self-described evangelicals attend church 
attend church once a month or less. Wow. And so uh, two-thirds of white Republican Christians identify as evangelical, even if they go to church only once a year or less. And so I, you know, I'm not, I don't proclaim to be an expert in every theological strand of evangelicalism, but I pretty darn sure there isn't a meaningful strand of evangelicalism that is the never going to church strand. (laughs) So, so what we have is a, a big group of people who have really married sort of this combination of politics and faith to a particular party. Hmm. Then you have a much smaller group of people of all, you know, uh, of all races and ethnicities that is, you know, generally conservative leaning, uh, that is the theological evangelicals, and they're much more split. They're much more split. Now, the white evangelical cohort of that group is pretty darn Republican, but sort of of all evangelical theological evangelicals in this country, there's a lot of political diversity, um, which makes a lot of sense because they're, they're grounding their identity in their theology. Whereas a lot of these, what you might call the exit poll evangelicals, are really grounding a lot of their identity in politics. That explanation, I think, goes uh, goes really far in explaining why evangelicals are so supportive of Trump, a man whose entire life and career presents the antithesis of a lot of yes. things that they're supposed to believe in, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes a long way to explaining why, for example... A lot of the moral statements made in 1998 by, say, Southern Baptists and others against uh, President Clinton and uh, the importance of character in politicians had no purchase at all on the evangelical community in 2016 and 2020. Hmm. And one of the reasons why it had no purchase at all is those were statements made by, those are theological statements made by theological evangelicals. And the actual penetration into sort of the exit poll evangelical category of those statements was zilch, zero. Now, there are plenty of of evangelical Southern Baptists who signed that, you know, who believed those statements in 98 about character and politicians who reversed course in, in 2016. And that's a subgroup that we absolutely have to talk about. But, and is very concerning to me, for example, but it's not where the mass of people are. The right. mass of people, the sort of exit poll evangelical, they have a high degree of partisan affiliation. Ryan Burge, the statistician from Eastern Illinois University, has sort of tracked where every single major religious subgroup is relative to the two political parties. And Catholics, for example, kind of by, they're right down the middle. Uh, Black Protestants are to the right of the Democratic Party. Um, atheists are to the left of the Democratic Party. The one group that is just almost totally partisan aligned with their party is is white Republicans. And and Burge said it well. Again, speaking of sort of the exit poll evangelical, white evangelicals are Republicans. Republicans are white evangelicals. And, you know, to to just delve a little bit deeper into what this belief system is when you tie it to politics, you've had debates with um, conservative pundits like Saurabh Amari. Right. Uh, who has embraced Trumpism as a sort of useful tool, maybe a necessary evil in the fight against liberalism. And the whole basis of that idea is that they see liberalism as an existential threat. And they see the Democratic Party as an existential threat. You you argue that that is that that is wrong and that they are wrong to do so. Why do you think that? Well, the, let's. Those are two sort of two different things. So when mm-hmm. when Sorba Mari says liberalism, he doesn't mean 
in the sense of liberal versus conservative, the way lots of people talk about politics. He right. means liberal as in like classical liberal. Mm -hmm. Sort of the Bill of Rights. And, Which is alarming. <laughs> correct. Sort of the, this rights-based theory of American government, the one you know that is rooted in this fundamental statement that we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this very idea that one of the purposes of government itself if not the main purpose of government itself is to protect these God-given liberties. So somebody like Saurabh Amari thinks that these, this liberty-focused form of government creates a series of atomized individuals, self-focused narcissistic culture, and that what actually the or government should be oriented towards the good, and the word good is capital, is the G is capitalized, mm. And that that's the purpose of government is to orient society towards the good and that to use then law as a teacher to teach society as to what the good is. And this is something that is both as a, in a principled way, it's fundamentally countered the principles of the founding of which Amari would say, yes, of course, <laughs> of course <Yeah>. it is. <laughs> the principles of the founding were fundamentally flawed in that regard. Yeah. As a, um, which I foundationally disagree with because I think the principles of the founding, although the founders themselves and for many, many, many decades, America itself was far from this vision, those principles of the founding are rooted in the fundamental dignity of man. Hmm. They're rooted in, in this respect for man as a, as a being created in the image of God and create a series of, of, of rights that the state has, will have an extreme difficulty in overcoming that protects that dignity. And it's not just the dignity of an individual man, but it's a dign dignity of mankind, of us as, a, as a, a community. And so it protects civic associations, it protects churches, it protects libraries, it protects, it protects the institutions of civic life in a way that recognizes their inherent dignity and worth as well. And so from a principled standpoint, I just fundamentally disagree with this critique of liberalism. From a pragmatic standpoint, all of the questions come. What is the capital G good? Whose vision of the capital right. G good triumphs? How do you propose? And many of the people who are these critics of, of liberalism are, um, are quite traditional Catholics. How do you propose this, that this very small minority group of a much larger Catholic faith is going to run this country, for example? You know, so you have a and host almost of take control of the social and cultural sort of institutions Correct. to enforce a more, you know, um, Christian value system upon them. Right. At some level, you know, if it hadn't achieved such prominence sort of in the, in the public debate, it would feel like one big, you know, one of those really long dorm room discussions you have with <laughs> people who have incredibly unrealistic political ideas, but sure. they'll fight about them till four in the morning. Uh, that's what it kind of feels like. Now, yeah. that to me is separate from this other bigger, much more broad-based view that sort of says America is in a state of existential crisis. If one party or the another prevails, then American democracy might end. So sure. somebody else I deba debated other than Serb Amari is a guy named Eric Metaxas. He's a mm. Christian conservative writer. He wrote a book called Bonhoeffer major Trumpist, uh, participated, for example, or helped lead the Jericho March um, in the days before the January 6th uprising, Right, a big Stop the Steal guy. So I, I debated him before all the Stop the Steal nonsense. And he had a view that 
the Democratic Party is fundamentally anti-Christian. It is fundamentally opposed to the Christian church. It's fundamentally opposed to the American founding. It's fundamentally opposed to everything that Christians hold dear. And his position was quite literally that if Joe Biden wins, it would end America, end America. <laughs> and so this is sort of this context that says, and then we've always heard it, every election is the most important election yes. of our lifetime. And so it's this increased catastrophizing of politics that says, unless we win, all is lost. And this isn't rooted in Catholic integralism like Sorab. It's, it's rooted in more sadly routine activism Yep. In, in media activity that is highly fear and is that is highly fear-based and sensationalistic. And so one of the consequences of this is that we know for a fact, for example, the more you pay attention, a person pays attention to political media, the more wrong they are about their political opponents. They tend to think they're they're more extremist than they really are, and that they hate uh, that they hate you more than they really do. And I mean, it's it's the same kind of rhetoric that you see frequently on, let's say, Tucker Carlson's show. Right. They is, they are coming for you. They right. are coming for you. They are the enemy. They are trying to destroy America. You've actually, uh, I believe, been the, the subject of a few attacks from from Tucker Carlson. Um, <laughs> a couple. Do, where, where do you think he falls in in the sort of in the the ideological camps of the of the sort of Trump side of the Republican Party? You know. That's a, so he is, I think what you would say about him is he is kind of a, if you're, if you're going to take him at face value that all of this, you know, they are coming for you and they are, they are after you. I think he's really trying to ground himself and is grounding himself in a very statist populism. Mm. So that essentially I am the avatar of the people and I am defending the people from the, the enemies of the people. So whether that's big tech crushing the little guy or whether that's global trade exploiting the little guy or whether that's the far left canceling the little guy, then you know there you have sort of Tucker as the champion. He's sort of mobilizing the masses against their enemies. Um, and so I think uh, Tucker is kind of in that camp, a J.D. Vance is in that camp. It's, a, a, uh, it's the people who look at the institutions of American society and see enemies everywhere. Yeah. Enemies of the people everywhere. And so who's going to stand up for the people? By golly, they're going to stand up for the people. And so that's why you have a lot of this very vague but alarmist language. Like if they, when they, uh, when they come for you and they will, you know, like that's that's something that that's the kind of lingo that that Tucker will use. Or a JD mm. Vance said in an interview, I think our pay, our people hate the right people. <laughs> um, it's a it's a it's a view of the world that says here are these enormously powerful forces, full of malevolent individuals, directly aimed at you and your lifestyle, and only we can help protect you from them. And you know, I think. The thing about about Tucker Carlson is that he's also part of this this group of conservatives that latched onto Trumpism and then tried to provide an intellectual grounding for it. Right. Right. Because right. Trumpism didn't really have an intellectual grounding. It was sort of it was all over the place. It was very instinctive um, and, and like guttural almost. Um, it, why do you think that Tucker has become so popular among conservatives? Do you think it's because he's 
sort of smart and lens and intellectual justification for um, Trumpism and maybe feelings, uh, sort of a, a, a more visceral agreement with Trump's ideas without having that sort of background for it, which Tucker well, Carlson provides. Let's be very real about one thing. 90% of the reason why Trump is, uh, Tucker is popular uh, with conservatives is because he's on Fox at 8 p.m. Yep. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, he's uh, right now, if you look sort of what is the the baseline ratings level you're going to get 8 p.m. at Fox? Um, 2.8 to 3 million viewers. Right. Very, right. it's going to be very, very high. Yeah. What is the deviation above, above replacement that Tucker gives you? Um, I don't know. Not, not a lot. Very, not a lot. So, no. number one, we have to understand that Tucker is essentially a replacement level Fox primetime host. Mm. So, you could pop Tucker out, plop in Ben Shapiro, and you might have more numbers. Yeah. To be honest. So, mm -hmm. part of it is I think we overemphasize Tucker because he is a unique voice in that Fox primetime lineup. Um, but he's not. I mean, he was beaten by the five recently, right? On and, a number of number of days and for the month of October, the five at, at 5 right. p.m. has been overtaking Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Yes, and nobody in America is talking about the five-ism, <laughs> you know? So, no. <laughs> so part of it is pretty dramatically exaggerated, to be honest. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, one of the things, one of the advantages I have, because I'm not living in the Beltway and the Acela Quarter, I live in the heart of red America. Like, my neighborhood is 85% red. Yeah. And the number of people you interact with sort of in this basic kind of grassroots Republican world who are imbibing this very statist populism is really low. Um, mm. it's, it's really low. Not to say there aren't any people. Of course, there are some people. But the extent to which sort of the Republican, you know, the, the great, the larger Republican population has sort of fundamentally transformed in some way, I think is just a mistaken or that Tucker is leading some kind of fundamental transformation is just deeply mistaken. Um, you know, the Glenn Young, that would be news to Glenn Youngkin voters, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, here's a guy who's kind of like um, Virginia's version of Mitt Romney in a lot of ways. I mean, he's a right. Carlisle group, you know, sweater vest kind of wearing <laughs> pretty moderate Republican. Um, and he outperforms Trump massively in Virginia. Right. And so I do think a lot of this is um, there have been a lot of people who've jumped on Trump's victory in 2016 and then tried to create out of it some sort of nation sweeping movement that's not directly connected to him. And most of that stuff kind of fizzles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're the, the um, I will say, however, there is one aspect of Trumpism that's quite successful, and that's the sheer animosity of it. Right. The right. sheer, the temperament of it, as opposed to the ideology of it. And speaking of that, that animosity, I, you've received pretty violent threats as the result of your political positions. Has that cooled off since Trump left office, or do you still feel, you know, a little, like you have you face intimidation from the far right for uh, whether it's speaking out against Trump or Trumpism in general? It comes and goes. Um, yeah. it, it's funny. It cooled off af right after the 2016 election, mm -hmm. but then got bad again uh, in 2018 and 2019. Cooled off in 2020, and then we had another round of 
some pretty dreadful stuff when I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times um, that was critiquing some of these anti-CRT laws. Okay. Um, and so it really has come, it's kind of come and gone um, mm -hmm. periodically, literally since 2015. 2015 and 2016 were terrible. Yeah. And then it, it, a lot of it just depends on sort of, um, are some, are, is a, a certain critical mass of the hard Trump right angry at you? And mm -hmm. if it, whenever that occurs, it's like night follows day, threats or harassment follow. Yeah. I, I should say uh, in 2016, uh, when Trump was nominated uh, to be the Republican nominee, there was a push for you to run for president uh, to stop Trump from being elected. I still and, can't believe that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading about it recently. And, and yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it, that must have been an insane ride for you. Um, yeah. you. You ended up not not doing it. I, and and one of the one of the reasons uh, that you gave was that you weren't sure if you wanted to play the Nader role. That is right. the, the spoiler in the election, um, because you didn't know if if either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump would be worse, which which one would be worse for the country. Do you still agree with that assessment having gone through four years of a Trump presidency? Um, boy, but that's a tough counterfactual. But if you, <laughs> not if with you, the decision to not run, but the decision, right, right, right. but understanding whether or not who would be worse for the country. Um, I think if you if you really are basically the effect of Trumpism on the GOP grassroots, yeah, which is something which I should have predicted but didn't fully predict until it began to be made clear, and especially post January 6th, um, I think the GOP, I think the GOP would be a fundamentally different party if Hillary had won. I think the GOP mm. probably would have won as a fundamentally different party in 2020. I think we would have a fundamentally different GOP president right now. And so, you know, of course, kind of doing the counterfactual history thing, the complete sort of dedication of the GOP to an unbelievable series of conspiracy theories that culminated in a storming of the Capitol by a subset of Trump supporters. And then the continuing sort of um, that the continuing effect of that on this party, I think is profoundly negative for the United States of America. And, and so, you know, if you made me choose and, you know, I had to go back in history and say, what would be better for the country over the longer term? I think you end up with a healthier GOP. I think you end up with a less radicalized Democratic Party mm. um, in the, you know, with, with a, a Hillary win. So, you know, I would say, don't quote me on this, but hey, we're re recording a podcast. But I, you know, I, I would have to say that I, I'd have a different answer to that now. Sure. And I, I mean, to, you know, I, I agree. We're, we're, we're now in this bizarre position where a majority of Republicans that are polled believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Right. And that is something that exists purely because Donald Trump just said it a bunch of times. But looking forward to future elections, is that sort of mass delusion something that really worries you? Oh, absolutely worries me. It, yeah. So it worries me on two counts. One is, I mean, look, it's just a basic reality that when you have an enormous number of people, I mean, this, this is going to sound, here, here's rocket science. <laughs> when you have an enormous number of people laboring under false beliefs about the state of their own Republican democracy, it's bad for that Republican democracy. That's just flat, flat out. Like, that's the easiest sure. thing to say in the world. Yeah. 
But what's even worse to me is it's not just that a large number of people are laboring under these delusions. It's that they tend to be hyper-concentrated amongst those who are most active in politics. Hmm. So it's one thing to sort of have, if you have 100 people and 50 of them are completely, you know, who are, are either sold out to conspiracy theory or conspiracy curious, and 50 are not, and the 50 that are not are pretty much running the place and setting the tone, it's a different situation than if you have the 50 who are sold out to the conspiracy theories sort of running the place and setting the tone. And at grassroots levels in the GOP across the country, not everywhere, of course, but across the country, that's what you have, is you have that element of the party that is most sold out to the conspiracies, most radicalized, is essentially setting and dictating the terms. And the Virginia situation is really interesting because, of course, Glenn Youngkin is not that. He's not that. Hmm. But how did he win the primary? They had this convention with ranked choice voting. And so sort of the, a, a normal primary favorite was lost. And here comes lost. And here comes um, Glenn Youngkin after six rounds of the, of the ranked choice sorting. So how much is that a unicorn? Um, hmm. But I, I, I'm hopeful that that does send a message that you can have a non-Trumpist Republican who can actually outperform Trump in basically every county in the entire state. Right. And, and so, but you know, but then the question is, could he have done that if Trump had condemned him during the election? And True. I think pr probably not. Yep. But I do think the the Glenn Youngkin um, victory is is an important moment. But. Yeah, I think it's the combination, really, of the commitment to conspiracies amongst so many millions and their hyper-involvement in politics. And, you know, I've spoken to a number of pro-Trump uh, pundits, hosts, anchors on this podcast, and they'll say that the election was rigged. Whenever I ask them about it, they'll say it was rigged through changes to, way, to the ways the elections were conducted in certain states in advance of the election. What do you make of those arguments? I think that's a ridiculous argument because these were not clandestine secret changes that only Democratic voters were informed about. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so an intelligent party says, hey, guys, and floods the zone and says, hey, guys, here's all the ways you can vote now. Take advantage of all of, you know, not each one person, but as a as a collective electorate. If, if it's easier for you to vote by mail at this Dropbox, vote by mail at the Dropbox. If it's better for you to show right. up in person, show up in person. That's what you do. Instead, what happened is the Democrats made these changes, and Trump basically said to all of his people, that, that's all bad. Don't do that. You know, Democrats vote by mail. We're going to show up in person and created mm. this sort of partisan sorting in the way in which you voted, <laughs> which if you're familiar with sort of vote by mail and other of these you know, alternatives to same day election day vote in person election day voting, you know that the sort of the partisan breakdown of it isn't so neat and clean. And then the other thing is sort of this conviction that a lot of Republicans had, which was more higher turnout is going to be worse for us. Right. Well, you know, the 20s, the, the Virginia, I hate to keep going back to Virginia, but Virginia's turnout was really pretty darn high. Huge. Yeah. 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 And who won? Who mm -hmm. won? And so um, I think a lot of it was Donald Trump and much the way he did with the Georgia election is he took a look at a changing legal landscape around voting, cast suspicion unjustifiably on all kinds of different ways of doing things, 
sort of double down on one is the only way. And then he makes this giant tactical mistake. And then his defenders sort of say, well, that pay no attention to, to pay no attention to the Trump behind the curtain. <laughs> it was, it was really more vote, ma- vote by mail, which I just don't think that that's not a stolen election. Um, right. When, when the, when the rules are changed and everyone can take advantage of them, that's making an election, election easier to vote in during a pandemic is not, it's not stealing. Sto- I mean, stealing it's, election. <laughs> it's not rigging. It's not stealing. No. It's absurd. Yeah. Now, just to quickly go back to um, uh, American evangelicals, you you wrote recently about uh, the and uh, uh, just concerning trend of an evangelical opposition to COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. What do you think is driving that right now? I think the root of it is that they're or the root of it goes back months and months and months before. Because on one hand, the the evangelical opposition to the Trump to the to the covid vaccine doesn't make a lot of sense because operation warp speed was quite arguably carried out under trump carried out under trump maybe one of the signature achievements of the trump administration Mm -hmm. this vaccine's approved before he's out of office in lightning fast time so in one sense if you look at it in isolation that doesn't make much sense at all but when you zoom out what you'll see is that from the very beginning of the of coronavirus, shortly after, very shortly after that kind of very super brief rally around the flag effect, it yeah. happens anytime we go through a joint a crisis as a country. This time is super brief. It gets, it keeps getting briefer. It's briefer <laughs> every now, now. You know, next crisis it'll be like six minutes. Seconds, of, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the second but, tweet, it's over. Right. But very quickly, and David Leonard has written about this uh, very eloquently in his New York Times newsletter. Um, the blue America began to overestimate the danger of the virus and red America began to underestimate the danger of the virus. Mm. And so that began to have a lot of knock-on effects. So in red America, you're going to have more opposition to social distancing, to restrictions on businesses, to wearing masks, to, and that's also gone on and and continued into the vaccine. Whereas in blue America, you've had a lot more if you're going to look at blue America's flaws, you might've had seen a, what, what is the deal with all of this outdoor masking well after it was established that you're, that you're pretty you're, safe outdoors. Or, exactly. Yeah. Or the long-term school closings well after it was established that, you know, you can safely reopen schools with that excess danger to the community. So they, but the problem with that sort of red America underestimation is especially post vaccine, you had a lot of people making a risk assessment that said that this vac- this uh, this um, virus that we don't think is a big deal is less dangerous. I'm less afraid of that than I'm of, of this vaccine. And that's been a fatal calculation for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Americans. And it's one of the great unfolding tragedies of our time. Hmm. And I think there's, you know, many of those who are trying to to defy these vaccine mandates that are being rolled out by either private businesses or um, the Biden administration are appealing to religious exemptions. Right. Do you think there's a religious basis to exemptions from vaccine mandates? No, no. not at all. I mean, I, I don't think now there might be some people who uh, adhere to uh, fringe sects that mm-hmm. have over the course that have a demonstrated openly un, openly understood theology that that shuns modern medicine. 
Yeah. Okay. So, sure. but if you're talking about the Southern Baptist Convention or the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church or the Presbyterian Church, or you name, or all of the major streams of non-denominational Christianity, there is not a theological opposition to vaccination. <laughs> it doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. Now, that does not mean that there are a lot of Christians who sincerely don't want to take the vaccine, okay, or that they sincerely sort of have created their own kind of private religious justification for not taking the vaccine. But that is what they've done is many of them quite sincerely is they've kind of made up a subcategory or a sub-theology within the larger theology of their faith. Right. Um, and, and now the interesting thing about the Constitution is the Constitution actually says, you can do that. You, it, you know, when, we, when you're talking about what is a sincerely held religious belief, we don't say, well, are you consistent with the rest of the Baptist theology? Or are you consistent with what the Vatican says? That's not how we evaluate that, mm -hmm. because we protect an extremely wide category of religious expression. So quite literally, you know, you can be a church of one, you know, right. you can be a, a church of one. And so what we have is a lot of people who sort of forsaken the traditional teachings on vaccines of the denomination they belong to or the church they belong to and have kind of become, you know, churches of one or churches of 200 or churches of whatever who have uh, created a kind of a, a, a sub-theology that I think is inconsistent with their, you know, their typical theological denominational affiliations. But that doesn't mean it's not constitutionally protected, if that makes sense. Right. Now, when you look at the mandates, the vaccine mandates, let's say from the, the Biden administration all the way down to, to private mandates that private businesses are implementing, are those lawful? Well, a lot of it is a dependent on context. So right. as a general matter, let, let's look at it this way. Um, does the state have the authority to implement a vaccine mandate in a time of epidemic? Mm. Um, that's pretty clearly, the answer to that's pretty clearly yes. And that, that, that there's a 1905 Supreme Court case that's directly on point on that. On that. So states and local governments, which have a, what's called the police power, they have a much sort of broader level of background power than the federal government. Um, yes, it can implement a vaccine mandate. That's been established. Now, do they have to include religious exemptions? I think a lot of that is going to be contextual. Um, that I do not think there's an absolute constitutional requirement to include religious exemptions, for example. But I do think that that's going to be highly contextual. Now, does the federal government have the power to implement a vaccine mandate? That's where it gets a lot more tricky. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's nothing in the constitution that the federal government is a government of enumerated powers. There is a commerce clause that allows the government to regulate interstate commerce. Can it do so under the commerce clause? Um, much iffier, um, can it tie a vaccine mandate to particular kinds of federal funding? much stronger position. So again, that gets a lot more contextual. Um, I would say, for example, if you, you have two, if you have a federal vaccine mandate tied to Medicare and Medicaid funding with health care workers, for example, that's going to be a heck of a lot stronger than an emergency OSHA regulation right. that doesn't even go through notice and comment rulemaking that applies to a lot of 
workplaces where quite, quite frankly, if you look at the risk, risk factors, et cetera, et cetera, that COVID isn't necessarily that big of a risk. So, you know, uh, it's just not susceptible to that easy kind of answer. And, but what is susceptible, susceptible to a much easier answer is private businesses. Hmm. Should the government restrict private businesses from imposing vaccine mandates? And the answer to that, to, in my mind, it's a res resounding no, just a resounding no. Now, my, my last question, um, you have a pretty fascinating and I think rather unconventional uh, career path to get to the point <laughs> now where you're, you're a professional writer and an author. Could you just tell us how you, how you got where you are? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, because I, I, this is a late career change for me. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I became a full-time writer in May 2015, one month before Trump came down the escalator. That's so, a, hell of a hell of a timing. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible timing. Um, really, it was rooted in my legal work. So um, as, I, the, as I started doing more and more constitutional litigation, this is way back in the, in the late 1990s, I got frustrated with the way the media covered some of these issues. And so I started to write about my own cases more. <laughs> and then I would write about the issues surrounding my own cases. And then I would, and so I just began to steadily over time, write about more things that I actually was doing. So if I'm doing constitutional law and I'm working in you know, free, free speech, free association, free exercise of religion, due process, I was writing about that. And then when I you know, deployed to Iraq, I wrote about that. And so my entire writing career was born out of the things that I was working on in the real world. Mm. And then as I wrote more and, and what in, uh, ultimately began happening is I just wrote more and more and more. And I, I reached this kind of career crossroads where I had to decide, am I gonna be, continue to be a full-time lawyer with a writing hobby or am I going to take the plunge and try to be a full-time writer? <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget in 2015, I, I called Rich Lowry and I said, I'm Rich. He's the editor of National Review. National and I Review, said, yeah. I said, um, I, I think I'd like to write more. And Rich, you know, bless his heart, said, I think we'd like more of your writing. And then, <laughs> and then that's how I made the jump. Wow. Uh, all right, David French, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with David French on Mediate.com.